Welcome back to the Be A Better Ally podcast. If you have not listened to the past handful of episodes, the context you need to know coming into this episode is that we are looking to have conversations with educators who are thinking about ways that we can reframe what has traditionally been referred to as a difficult dialogue into a necessary dialogue. Today, it is my privilege to introduce a, an IBDP CAS service learning coordinator, Shay Asensio. Hello, my name is Shay Asensio. My pronouns are she, her, hers, and I'm currently working at Luanda International School in um, Angola. I work with the language acquisition department and I also coordinate uh, IB CAS, uh, which stands for Creativity, Activity and uh, Service, and uh, better known as Service Learning. Thank you so much, Shay. And I, I've known you for a long time. I know that you've also, you've worked with primary school students as well as middle and high school students, and you're also a parent yourself. Yes, that's right. I, uh, yeah, I'm very fortunate to uh, have experienced uh, what I would call the whole spectrum, you know, from the little ones, the great, great one, all the way now to seniors, to the year 12s. And, uh, and it's amazing to see uh, just experience, right? That the differences between working with young, very young learners and, uh, and, and these, you know, young adults, especially, you know, the grade 12s or mm. year 13 students who you can have very honest, real conversations. Uh, yes, I'm also uh, very lucky and fortunate and grateful, you know, to be to be a mom uh, to a very spirited uh, six-year-old uh, boy, and uh, yeah, and that brings a whole other perspective to my life, you know, to as a person, but also as an educator. And I'm really glad to have that that gigantic perspective that you're going to bring to our conversation today. Uh, and of course, this conversation is part of a series of conversations where we're exploring the role that educators can play in reframing um, what we typically might call as touchy or too political or difficult or hard dialogue and thinking about how often those topics are really necessary conversations that we need to have. So if I can ask you to kind of go back in time, forget about being an educator, but think back to your life as a student Shay, what can you remember about being taught in terms of engaging in difficult conversations? What are some of the earlier lessons that you can remember receiving around that? Yes, I love this um, question. Um, well, I'm, I identify as Mexican, Latinx, and I grew up in, a, you know, in Mexico in a, an educational Mexican system. and having difficult conversations or challenging authority was not, was completely out of the question. Um, so we were taught completely the opposite, to avoid conflict and to not challenge authority. Um, so the traditional concept of discipline was incredibly important, you know, as, as in you have to follow the rules, you have to listen to authority, to know to the teacher. You have to make sure that you don't 
uh, get in trouble, do the right thing. And I'm using my air quotes here. Mm -hmm. uh, so I very often got in trouble because <laughs> I did uh, challenge, you know, authority. And, uh, and I, at some point, I grew up, you know, as, as a teenager thinking or questioning, am I a good person? You know, am I, because I kept pushing the boundaries. Uh, but yeah, no, no, we were not taught at all to engage in difficult conversations. And I, and I didn't learn how to until I was an adult. But, but I see it now, uh, and I'm, I'm very, very glad to see that, uh, at least in, in the international school environment, it is encouraged. And in many schools, I've seen that it is uh, explicitly taught how to engage in difficult conversations. And I'm also seeing it with my child, you know, even though he's a six-year-old, uh, he's taught to question and, and to push the boundaries in a healthy way. And, uh, and he, he will question, you know, if I ask him to do something, but why? Why do I have to do that? And that also pushes me as a parent, you know, to think of that perspective uh, from a very young, you know, like seeing, seeing it through the eyes of, of my child, uh, the importance of engaging in conversations that matter. Uh, but yeah, no, it's uh, going back to the way I was taught. Well, that was not taught. It was, it was not an option. And I'm kind of curious to just touch on that issue that you mentioned. You feel like your six-year-old son is learning to engage in difficult conversations and to, to question. Uh, and I, maybe this sounds cynical, but I'm thinking, don't all six-year-olds do that? So can you give me an example where you feel like actually his, his questioning or, or his pushing back or his open-mindedness that you're seeing can you give us an example of how you're seeing that play out actually in his classroom and then that transferring over into the home? My, my son has long hair. You know, it's, it's, he's a boy and he has long hair. And in some places, you know, it's common to see a lot of kids, you know, boys with long hair. But uh, where we are, not so much. We live in Angola, right? Um, and he's told many, many times, you know, like, oh, what a, what a beautiful girl or what a cute girl. And, and, one, and I see, you know, his face, sometimes he gets like really annoyed. And, and once at home, you know, we go home and he, he asked me, uh, why do people think I'm a girl? And I just threw back the question at him, like, why, why do you think, yes, that's a really good question. Why do you think that is? And he said, I know why, it's because I have long hair and girls have long hair. Uh, but that's so silly, you know, boys also have long hair. Uh, why would people just think that I'm a girl because I have long hair? You know, so, so you start mm -hmm. seeing these uh, develop, you know, it's not developing that, that knowledge of bias. And we did talk about bias, you know, I said it's bias, you know, people think that because you, uh, they just quickly assume that long hair means that you're a girl. And, uh, and he started questioning, like, what do, you know, what are other things that people think, like, just by looking at each other? And, uh, and so that was a really good conversation to have with a six-year-old. And it made me think about how much sometimes, both as parents and educators, 
underestimate you know the the level of thought and engagement that kids you know that that young can engage in and uh and the very important job that we have you know as educators um to make sure that these very important concepts in today's society are learned and taught at a very young age Mm. Uh, you know, and that's interesting because, you know, you're, you're talking about a six-year-old and I was speaking recently with head of school, Kathleen Nagley, and, and we were talking about service learning uh, from sort of a high school perspective and how, you know, often or sometimes we maybe step in and, and kind of prevent high school students from experiencing more authentic service learning, that sometimes there's a pressure for maybe a service event to look quote unquote perfect um, and then for the adults in the community to be leading where you know the students have the capacity to take on that leadership um, it, it might not look the way that um, it looks if like a, a PTO or a group of, of teachers lead it but that in fact actually if we can get out of their way and not underestimate them they will do amazing things and their service learning it will be more authentic. I'm wondering if that example of, you know, realizing we underestimate children, you gave the example with your six-year-old, do you see that happen um, at the other end of the school with middle and high school students? Absolutely. And I, thanks for sharing, uh, yes, that about, about Kathleen. And I completely agree. And I, I see it over and over again. And, and I'm, I'm learning really fast. This is the first uh, time that I work on uh, with service learning. and after my first year or within the first year, I very quickly learned that um, I think it's, it's, it's good, it's well intended, you know, when it comes from educators to say, you know, make sure that this happens, make sure that it, as, as, as you said, you know, it looks this way, that it comes out this way, that it looks, you know, it's, it's optically looks good, any event or anything that, that our students lead uh, or prepare and, and I thought, no, no, it, this, this cannot continue happening. You know, it's, it has to be owned by students, it's their voice. And what I started doing uh, was to email, you know, all the educators that were involved or like would oversee anything, you know, any, an event uh, that students organized or anything organized by students, I would email beforehand and say, this is what is going to happen, you know, like they're, um, they're going to lead, let's say, uh, a jogathon, right? Uh, and, and things will not look good. You know, they will um, forget to do some things. They will forget some steps. They, they might not get the forms to you on time. They are going to make mistakes. They will, but please, let's, you know, as, as the adults, uh, in the room, let's guide them. Don't tell them what to do. Guide them, remind them. Uh, let's be there for them. You know, coach them through the process. Uh, but knowing that this is theirs, you know, and they do have to make those mistakes. They do have to experience the failure. They have to because they next year or later on when they are involved in a similar um, experience they'll be better you know they will learn from this past experience and uh and, and and the first time i did it i felt like oh i'm gonna get you know a lot of uh, uh pushback from from teachers or, or administrators and 
and I did a little bit, but then they saw it, you know, like they saw the value in, in letting them have their own journey, you know, and in supporting and in being there as a, as a coach rather than an authority. And, uh, and that's, that's worked really, really well. And, uh, and, I'm, and not only myself, but also students and other teachers are seeing the fruits of that. Mm. Uh, you know, and, and you kind of touch on something that has come up in this series so far, and I, I've experienced as well, sometimes when you are going to advocate for change, you always have to anticipate some pushback. You know, it, it might not be an overwhelming amount, and in the case that you just referenced, you expected some, some came, you know, you were sort of prepared for that. And I'm, I'm wondering, I'm wondering where you learned that from, because I, I think, I can think back to when I first became an educator, uh, you know, and you're super excited. Um, I, I think sometimes you don't understand necessarily the domino effect that can happen when, when change is asked for. And I, I remember, you know, when I was in my early 20s and I wanted to do something new, I never understood why people got upset about having to do something different. Um, in terms of handling that little bit of pushback, can you remember how it is that you sort of learn to, to navigate that? Because it's, it isn't easy, you know, and sometimes I think it actually does derail people entirely from wanting to bring a new idea or bring an issue forward. So how have you learned to cope with that pushback? It's, it's more importantly, you know, like you're, you're engaging in, in an act of, of courage and you need that person you know you need a you need a person or a, or a coach you know somebody who can guide you and i've been very very fortunate to have those people around me you know somebody who who i can go to you know my my allies i can go and say like i want to i want to um change something or i or i want to propose this new idea but i don't know how to and i've had those people uh, around me that take me by the hand and tell me, you know, like, okay, let's think of your intent, you know, like, what are you intending to do? Uh, think of, you know, like, what are the advantages of doing that? Think of, uh, you know, how is this going to uh, advance, you know, uh, learning and teaching? So I think that having that guide, that leadership, has really, really prepared me, you know, for those, um, for those kind of situations. Uh, having that kind, uh, open guide, what I know that I can say, but I want to say this, and, you know, I'm, I'm feeling safe to share my ideas, but also I have that kindness, you know, from that person saying, uh, no, think about this first, you know, it's, uh, or, or you need to consider these other elements. Uh, that has definitely been key for me. Mm. So I, I guess sort of that, that mentorship piece or even just having a, a thought partner uh, whenever you do want to sort of do something that might not necessarily um, make your colleagues happy has, has a lot of value if, if, if I'm understanding you correctly. Yes, yes, that's right. I think that, um, yeah, you, you have, you can make, changes uh brave changes when when you know 
when you have that, yeah, that mentorship, that guidance, somebody uh, who is your sounding board, somebody that you can bounce ideas from, and uh, and and yeah, and you know you can go back to that person and say like, oh, I think I did this wrong, or oh, you know, like just yeah, that having that mentorship is so important. You know, and as you said, and, and I'm sure in your work as a cast coordinator, those are sort of conversations that you need to have semi-regularly. And I'm wondering, though, uh, you know, I'm sure you've had loads of conversations like that. But if I could ask you just to think back across your career, if you were to identify the singular, most profound, difficult conversation that you've had to have, does one come to mind? I think it makes me think of two things here. One is that, you know, the, the young me, you know, when I, when I knew I had to have a difficult conversation, but I couldn't do it, you know, like those, it makes me think of those missed opportunities, like wanting and knowing that a crucial conversation was needed, but not having the skills uh the language or the confidence to have them um yeah and, and it makes me sad just thinking about that right and 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 i think that goes back to that mentorship piece or that coaching piece of uh not not having that confidence of, of approaching somebody else or knowing you know like there's there's actually somebody within my community or outside of my community that could that could help me but I simply did not know and I and I missed you know those opportunities of having those conversations because I wasn't ready to do so yet or maybe I was you know maybe I was but I I didn't have the skills then and the confidence and when I the times that I had those meaningful you know very and difficult conversations I think that they've been profound and powerful when we got to name the underlying issue. Mm. Uh, so for example, uh, I, uh, a friend asked me to you know, speak to the leadership team about uh, sexual harassment, but the word, you know, the, the term sexual harassment wasn't mentioned. And, and when we got to that point of, this is sexual harassment, you know, like you could feel the energy in the room changing because that was the underlying issue. And, and I think a lot in when you engage in this type of difficult conversations, there's an element of storytelling. And, and in that moment, in that place, I felt, you know, the courage to say, I experience it. You know, it is called sexual harassment and it's terrible. You live with that your entire life. And you, you could feel that shift in the room. Mm. And these conversations are transformational, right? Mm. Like you don't walk away of a conversation like that without taking action. When is, when is that, you know, like when is, when is that type of conversation? And I think that when you have difficult conversation and started actually calling them courageous conversations are when you get to the bottom of it. You know, what is the underlying issue? Is it lack of trust? Is it inequality? 
Is it sexual harassment? Is it sexism? Is it racism? I think that that is when you can really see a change and take action. Um, mm. Yes, and, and just like having these conversations, I think it, you know, when, when we're brave about it, when we dare, uh, there's, there's always the two parties, you know, like the one who's bringing up the, the issue or need, and then there's the, the other side that is listening to it and, and that you're hoping, you know, like that listens and, and makes, makes a difference or makes a change. And when you have these conversations, the, the two parties relate and connect, hopefully. But regardless, you always walk away with, with, with something, you know, either you walk away saying, you know, thinking to yourself, oh, I need to be better prepared for the next time, or, oh, that went really, re that went really well, why did that go well? Uh, either way, you know, there's so much value in having these conversations. You know, and I completely agree. And I'm also just thinking about language and euphemisms and why some terms feel so loaded when in a way we are talking about them and have been talking about them for a long time in schools. You know, you mentioned that as soon as you mentioned sexual harassment, there is a charge. Yet, you know, since I think the 80s, schools have been claiming to be you know, bully-free, anti-bully places. And it's sort of like, well, when we talk about bullying, do we actually talk about the types of bullying that are pervasive in schools? You know, of, of course, there's loads of data that talks at length about how LGBTQ plus students and teachers are at a much higher risk of bullying issues, yet that acronym is often very loaded. Um, you know, and, and also, of, of course, issues of racism happen all the time, but there's a difference between saying this is a, an issue of racism versus this is a bullying issue. Um, and and I'm, I'm wondering, you know, a lot of that does fold into service learning. In, in your experience as a CAS coordinator, does that ring true to you? Do you feel like there are certain things that we ask students to investigate and advocate for that are more loaded than others? Uh, yes, yeah, I think, I think it, yeah, it definitely can happen. You, you can, yeah, face that. I, and I just, um, I've been reading uh, How to Be an Anti-Racist and I, and I wanna read just this, this part of, uh, I think it's page 17 for people who are reading it this part that I think you, you might like, and, and it relates to this, and it says, definitions anchor us in principles. If we don't do the basic work of defining the kind of people we want to be in language that is stable and consistent, we can't work towards stable, consistent goals. And, oh, when I read that, it, it, re it really, made me reflect and, and took me straight to our teaching environment because as you said, you know, like there's there's terminology and there's there's words that are so loaded, but why are they? You know, like these language drive us, you know, like language anchor us and move us forward. And sometimes I wonder 
if the schools, you know, like there's, you know, are, are we scared of, of using this terminology? And, and what I see in service learning and, and with, with youth, you know, with young students is that they're more brave about their approach, you know, like they're more uh, willing to see and learn things the way they are. And at least the way, you know, students at, at my school approach service learning is, it's, it's not only uh, reading, but they, they go to the source, you know, like if they're uh, learning about uh, LGBTQ issues, just to give you an example, they, they will go and find that community. They will go and interview, they will go and, you know, uh, find out what are, what are they doing within the, the community. They would uh, engage in, in real life, you know, in what is happening right there and right now. And I think that shifts the, the way they approach service learning because they are, they are experiencing that firsthand, you know, like what's the need or what is the issue. Uh, but yeah, and, and, and at the same time, it helps them to better understand terminology, you know, and why it is that way. There's always story, you know, like years, you know, like history to, to any of these terms. And, and I think that that helps to, uh, to have that consistent language when they engage in, in any type of issues. Uh, but it's, it's true for, for teachers as well, right? If, if we, if we want to engage in, in, in uh, racism, if we want to engage in, uh, I don't know, inequality, we have to, you know, I think we have the responsibilities as educators and schools to create that language that is stable and consistent and it can be approachable. And, uh, and I think it's, you, we will get better results uh, and, and really tackle those, those issues if, if we understand that and if we can name them. Yeah, when it becomes sort of part of the the vocabulary of the school, and you're right, you know, the more issues are talked about, I think the deeper the conversations can go as well. Um, are there conversations in the in the coming school year like that that you're hoping become uh, more pervasive at your school? Yes, absolutely. Uh, uh, one of another teacher and I, we would love to start uh, this this happened before in our school there was a um uh lgbtq plus a group and uh that was initiated by uh two teachers and um unfortunately they left the school and uh they couldn't continue it but we want to continue this conversation we want to uh, be better prepared we want to educate ourselves. Uh, of course, we want the students to be the one who ultimately, you know, lead this group and the ones who uh, determine, you know, what it is that they, they want to bring to the table and they want to talk about and what they want to unpack. And uh, it is, um, I mean, you know, we, we have to bring it up to our leadership team and, and ensure that is, uh, that it's okay with us to be, you know, to go ahead with it. And, and that requires preparation, right? Like re that requires explaining why it is important, 
and uh, and and why you know why it is more than I mean most importantly for our students. I mean ultimately we are we're here and I mean here is in education to improve learning and teaching. You know like to advance it to enhance it. Uh, so at the end of the day we have to go back and think of this is good for our students and uh, and make sure that the why is known and understood. Yeah, and you know, it's interesting your point about it being led by two teachers, they've left and then it's it's gone. And, uh, you know, unfortunately, I, I feel like that's not, um, you know, a, a story when it comes to LGBTQ plus equity and advocacy work that's unfamiliar. You know, sometimes it does fall on the shoulders of, of one or two or, or three teachers, but because it's not uh, LGBTQ plus ed is not necessarily interwoven into the curriculum. Uh, it, it can disappear that quickly. And um, I'm, I'm interested to get your thoughts on when you're bringing your proposal through what some of your strategies might be, because, you know, I, I think sometimes, uh, you know, I, I've heard the question from different members of the community of why do we have to talk about this at all? Um, you know, and, and usually I will I will speak to you know the reality that, that there are LGBTQ plus people always have been um, all around the world. Sometimes I hear, oh, this is a Western value, and you know that's not true, or this is modern society, and also that's not true. And and I liken it often to it would be like teaching mathematics with leaving uh, you know a few numbers out of out of your math curriculum. Um, we don't we don't necessarily want to leave groups of people outside of our curriculum. So for people who are listening and, and also might be dealing with questions around, well, why do we even have to teach kids about this? Or why have an equality or a gay straight alliance at school? Thinking strategically, because unfortunately, I think still we do have to be strategic when we are, are pushing for that change. Do you and your colleague have a few ideas about what, what you might um, bring in that proposal or um, how it is that you're going to get your communication piece heard? Uh, yes, we, we began working on it and uh, fortunately there's incredible resources out there, uh, including your, your blog, which we love. Thank and you. We've been, yeah, and your podcast, which we've been listening to. Thank you. And uh, yes, and, and, and yeah, big shout out to you for that because there's very few people who are doing that work, you know, like that legwork of, uh, you know, curating resources and, and talking to other educators about what they're doing. So the work that you are doing has, it's really guiding us through this process. Uh, there's also a lot of data, you know, there's, it's, it's being proved uh, that having these safe spaces are, crucial they're so important and I'm, and I'm confident that many international schools have well-being about part of the curriculum and wouldn't it fit there you know it's in a part of what we do uh, so I think that bringing forward a proposal that backs up with data you know the, the benefits and the importance of of having these safe spaces will help us to move forward but also at the work that many other schools are doing uh, to to advance, you know, uh, 
equity in the schools and within you know uh, students and i think that that if you can bring that to forward you know to the leadership team or to whoever you have to uh, run this by i i want to believe you know like that, that that the team would listen to it and 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 would um would let it go ahead and especially if your mission you know it's it's is driven by words such as uh, i don't know uh equality or a diverse community or committed to mm -hmm. you know uh something like socially responsible um it, it, yeah i think it's it's necessary you know and in, in in communities to have these groups I, and i i think you're right there's i think you you'd really struggle to find a school mission out there that doesn't refer to some sort of, um, you know, open-minded, globally-minded, <laughs> yes. um, you know, empathetic. I, I feel like a lot of those values are there, but it goes back to our earlier point about when we are using these words, what do we really mean? And are we only using those words if it's cis, straight, white people? Um, you know, are the words for everybody, I guess, is sort of the, the, the question there. Yes. Uh, yeah, I think that we, we have so much work to do uh, as educators. And I think that uh, I've been hearing a lot about letting go of the being right, you know, or letting, letting go of like not always having the the right answer or using the right words. I think that we just need to uh, engage ourselves and be open to learn and and start using these terms and words that are necessary to use, you know, in order to to move forward and, and advance what we do at schools. Uh, I think that usually there's a lot of fear around the vocabulary that we use or around um, not using or using certain terms. And, and I think unless we start doing it, uh, we, we just need to start doing it in order to, to get, you know, start the life work and, and, and engage. Uh, otherwise you're, you know, we're, we're just stopping this and just perpetuating what is already there. I think that's exactly right. You know, I've, I've experienced that. I think a lot of people are afraid if they say the wrong thing, then everyone in the room will think, oh, you're homophobic or, uh, you know, you're, you haven't been educating yourself the way that you should be. And I think sometimes that, that silence is such a, a big, big resistant force. And I, I often share with people, you know, I am a lesbian. I have said homophobic things, um, you know, for, for mm -hmm. a long time, I used to make jokes about being gay and it, you know, my wife, I, I was an adult when I was doing this and my wife kind of pointed out like, why are you always making those jokes about yourself? And, yeah. um, you know, I, I thought about that for a while and I, I do just think that's, that's sort of the way that I always heard lesbians spoken about. Um, and it kind of, it took me a little, a little while to realize I don't have to do that. And it's actually not really helpful. Um, so I think that's the other piece is just realizing, yes, the, the bias exists there for a lot of people. Um, 
and if we're quiet about it, it never changes. We have to have the conversations. So Shay, have you been having any conversations with peers or, or educators where you, you either feel hopeful that um, you know, silence or that fear is not going to win? Do you have any, any examples of that? Um, Trisha, can you, can you repeat that again? Sorry, Tana sure. just in the room. And totally yeah, no problem. No problem. Yeah. Um, well, you know, as we were saying, fear and perhaps um, the desire to say, okay, I'm not going to engage with this conversation because I might say the wrong thing. Sometimes silence and fear win out. I'm wondering if you've experienced um, any conversations or any groups where they are having that really necessary open dialogue. Uh, yes, uh, I, I think that having, and it does not magically happen. Uh, I'm, I'm very fortunate to be part of a, a CBK Associates. Uh, CBK stands for Catherine Berger Kaye, and uh, you might have heard from her, uh, her work for, for her work on service learning. Um, and this, this is a group that has created a very safe environment. And, and I think that's w one of the important points here. You know, like you, if you want to be open and have those very necessary conversations, you need to first work on creating that safe environment, you know, in, in making sure that people uh, feel safe to as, as you mentioned before, you know, like say the wrong thing, you know, it doesn't matter if it's wrong, we're all learning and it's okay, it will get better. Um, and safe, safe environments is, is the result of uh, leadership, I think, you know, on people walking the talk of whoever is leading, uh, saying, uh, you know, I, I used to use these terms and I, but I learned this and now it's this way. It, it's about you know, creating the strong relationships and going out of your way to get to know your team. Um, and every time, and, and I, yeah, I'm fortunate. I'm very, very lucky to be, to be part of, of a very safe group where we can truly say what we think, what we're going through uh, and, and not being scared of being wrong. Uh, and not being scared of questioning and or saying I, I don't understand this. I earlier today I, I met with uh, with this group and we had a conversation. We are reading um, how to be an anti-racist and uh, and our com I mean not only this one but our conversations are usually you know there, there's tension and it's and it's that that's that uh, kind of really good tension, you know, that makes me, that makes you think, that makes you uh, ponder on certain things. And, and again, you know, like going back to, to create this, to ensure that, you know, that, that you create that tension, you, you, you just have to be such a skill leader, you know, and you have to have such a, uh, strong mm -hmm. relationships with your group in order to approach these very important issues. And, um, yeah, we're we're talking right now about uh, anti-racism, but uh, you know, and we've talked about uh, yeah, LGBTQ issues and sexism and sexual harassment in the workplace and and many other things. But uh, yes, again, it's it's not as simple 
you know, as it sounds like, go and talk, go and talk to your team about this or, uh, or, a or at, a, at school, you know, like go and talk to your team, team about that. It's, it requires so much work. How can you change the lenses that you're looking through to recognize actually, as you said, those conditions need to be created first. And so I'm wondering like off the top of your head, can you think of any symptoms? So if someone is listening and they're thinking, oh, but Shay, I've already done that. You know, like our group, people feel comfortable. They're going to share. They will be able to handle tension. Are there any symptoms that you think you can say, well, look for this, because if people do really feel safe and do really want to engage, they might be saying things like this, or you might be hearing phrases like that. Mm. I think that uh, people need to get to know each other. You know, like I, th I think I, I had a very powerful exercise where uh, you had to I was part of this exercise where you have to say, you know, who you are and and who and what's your identity, you know, like what you identify yourself as. And I think if you start with something as simple as that, it will immediately, you know, uh, allow you to know the people that you're working with. And that is so important because you're bringing that vulnerability piece to that team or to that workspace and you get to know that you know the other other people um, at different different levels and if you can make those connections you know that 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 emotional connection if you can be vulnerable in a group then that opens up the door to talk about issues of great importance, you know, mm. or, or have very difficult conversations. Um, I think if, if, um, if you're in a team like that and you're asked, I don't know, like uh, knowing, so, knowing socially that you're queer, but why aren't you at school? You know, if, if a person can answer that in a group, then it is a safe sp space, you know. It is it is a place where you can be open about who you are and bring up your own perspective, or be wrong about, you know, like what you're saying. But knowing that there's a caring community that is helping you to move forward. But if you are asking, you know, questions and you're not getting the responses that you're expecting then perhaps there's more work that needs to be done in terms of building relationships, in terms of uh, creating safe environments. And, and, and again, you know, it doesn't happen magically. It's, resu it's a result of a lot of work. It's a, it's a result of um, leadership. It's a result of uh, working collaboratively. And uh, yes, being connected, being, being vulnerable. Um, yes. Yeah. And I, I, I might get in trouble for saying this, but I feel like my experience with working at international schools, what I see happening a lot is that schools rely on that relationship building piece to be done 
by social drinking. Um, you know, I, I think when yeah. I first went to an, an international school, I was really surprised at how that was sort of the, this will build our community piece. And, uh, you know, I, I stopped drinking later in my career and noticed like, huh, you know, like I am not, not, now I'm not really privy to a lot of those conversations. And I've kind of always thought about how, you know, this new theme of well-being and wellness has cropped up, but I don't really hear a lot of people talking about, um, okay, well, what does that mean in terms of having other opportunities to build relationships and communities that don't involve drinking? Um, and I, I don't know, you know, like maybe that's unfair of me. I, I have worked at schools where there's been a lot of collaboration through service learning and relationships build up that way. Um, but I still feel like, unfortunately, the go-to community builder just is, is really overly reliant on alcohol. I don't know. Maybe that's unfair. <laughs> no, no, I think, I think that, that you're right. And, and that, that might be bias, right? Like the, the, the group or, or, uh, people organizing these just uh, very quickly assuming that mm -hmm. this is the way we connect as human beings. Um, and, and again, you know, it's, it's, it's well intended, but I think it's, it won't shift, it won't change until we challenge it and, and we question it. And that's, and that's not easy, right? But it's, th these, these are, this is a really good example of how, uh, these conversations or stepping up to the plate, you know, like need to happen. They're they're necessary, and I think that we're living in in a moment, you know, in in, in time and space where where we need to be brave, you know, like we need to address these type of issues. I mean, we cannot just maintain the status quo. Uh, we we need to learn, you know, like we need to educate ourselves more and and just not be afraid of addressing these issues and bringing them up to to people that that do hold power you know and that we know that can make a difference and fear has come up in every conversation that i have had with 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 guests from educators to uh, you know the, the head of school to the vice principal that i had on it's and it's interesting how I am guessing it will continue to come up in these conversations. Shay, I'm wondering if you have any resources that you would recommend that are, are useful for us in terms of meeting that fear, because I think it, it is, it's very real. And I, I don't think you can simply just say, well, push through it because, um, <laughs> you know, like everybody who works in a school has so much on their plate already. So are there any resources that, that you might recommend for someone who is in a position where they want to have these necessary conversations, they want to advocate for change? Yes, I, um, there's a lot of professional books out there on um, having you know, crucial conversations or difficult conversations, uh, but I'm going to be completely honest. You know, I, I've read a couple of those books uh, I think one of the titles is uh, yeah, having crucial conversations. Uh, but I'll tell you what has really moved me forward. Um, I read Daring Greatly and Dare to Lead by Brené Brown, and I th and I think that these 
two books, you know, like they they approach they they approach these, you know, like these issues with the lens of um, through the lens of sorry lens of uh, courage, and and I think as as you said, you know, like we, we usually come from a place of fear. I'm not going to say this because. Uh, my principal might not see me the same way. Or if I say this, I might get a bad letter of recommendation. But I, th I think that approaching conflict and, and uh, confrontation or through, through the lens of you know, kindness and vulnerability and courage, it just takes you to a, to a different level. Um, also, very recently, uh, and I'm not, well, I might be a little biased here, but I know Dural Learning launched this Creative Approaches to Conflict and Confrontation, and it's an excellent resource, and I really love it. And, and, I, and I put this in practice before, you know, like having a person where you can exercise these skills, because having difficult conversation or courageous conversations is full of skills. You know, like you need to have someone that you can practice with. And if you look at this resource, Creative Approaches to Conflict and Confrontation, there are a lot of opportunities that you can use. You know, there's a lot of uh, prompts that guide you through how to have this conversation. Um, and I, I just highly recommend, you know, people who are looking at, at exercising these to look within your, within your own community, or you might have friends, you know, like uh, educators or maybe non-educators outside of your, of your, of your bubble and, and tapping into those people because there's, there's a lot of people with a lot of experience that can guide you, guide you and give, you know, you know, uh, provide you with that safe environment where you can, when you can practice these skills. Um, I think something else that has helped me a lot and, and in my work, you know, like with youth is reading about the work that um, young people do, you know, in bringing on agency and advocacy through their own journeys, because these journeys that these young people are experiencing are through, you know, a lot of, um, through difficult conversations. For example, the, the work of Greta Thunberg, you know, how old is she, 17, mm. 16? Mm -hmm. And I, I'm, I, I'm, well, you've seen her, you know, we've seen her on platforms. She is constantly talking and having these very courageous conversations or the work of Malala. Uh, I mean, look at, what she's been gone through, what she's been going through, right? And, and what she had to go through to be where she is right now. And we need to remember that we work with youth. So from a personal, you know, like professional standpoint, yeah, we, we need to train ourselves and we need to educate ourselves to have these conversations. But also we need to remember that we work, or I personally, you know, work with youth very closely. And I need to have this bridge you know like we're also teaching the students how to have this difficult conversation and advocate for themselves and we need to bridge this uh, to create a strong connection and and to me is also reading what 
how you you know other young people are doing this and going through these journeys and talking to my students and asking them you know like what are what are you reading what are you listening mm -hmm. to um what are you watching to to ensure that there's this connection yeah and i, I think in a way yeah. that's confronting you know i think a lot of the education system you know I, Again, we're, I think we're realizing just how flawed it's been in so many ways. And one of them that I don't think we really see talked about all that much is the ageism in, you know, mm -hmm. the assumption that, well, teacher must do everything, you know, certainly student is empty vessel and just how wrong that is as well. And it's nice to see, I think it's nice to see that, that shifting um, a little bit, but, you know, as you say, we still have so much work to do. Yes, definitely. And uh, yeah, just, just before the end of the, of the school year, a student was telling me, a, a senior student, so 16, 17-year-old, uh, she said, um, Shay, I think I need to change the way, you know, like I, I, I need to shift my friendships a little bit because uh, I looked around myself you know like last time i met with my friends and i and i realized that i was in a group of of uh, four other white people mm. and and i thought to myself like i need to have a more diverse group in terms of you know multi-generational you know and when she said that word i thought like wow because this you know like this is going to bring more perspective to my life and if i only hang out with this other four people i mean they're lovely but you know like how is that helping me to become a better person and uh, that that will always stay with me you know like that comment and uh and i think also ourselves as educators and individuals we need to look ar around ourselves right and see what we're surrounded by or what we surround ourselves by um Yes. Yeah, yeah, that's that's very true. <laughs> I'm glad you brought that up because I do think, you know, it's become um it's become normal to hear I think educators reminding students to, you know, break out of your filter bubble. But then I I think back to a lot of the the grouping habits that that we model, you know, and, and often because it's convenient, you are friends with people in your department or in your school at international schools. And, and also just sort of maybe you're friends with the people that share the, the same kind of perspectives on given policies. Um, and also just, I think your point is, how are we helping students reframe what they want from friendship? And maybe schools need to do better in terms of helping educators reframe, what do you need from a colleague? And what are some of the other things that we could do for one another in terms of leveraging and, and shifting and expanding perspectives. Yes, definitely. I think that that's so important. And it, schools could engage, you know, in, in, in that exercise in, in ensuring that we, we ask, we ask uh, from students so much, right? Have your own perspective, you know, and advocate uh, in, on your, on your own journey. And, yeah, are we doing the same? Are we, are we modeling that? And uh, I think that very few, in very few places, you know, workspaces as educators, we do that. And uh, yes, as, as, as you were saying, socially, you know, socially, 
uh, outside of school, yeah, what are we doing to to also engage ourselves with with people of you know that bring different perspectives to our conversations, and or how are schools you know encouraging that as well? Uh, it's it's a two way road, right? Like it's it's teachers do have to be engaged, but also schools need to to make sure that we have those opportunities to connect and experience, you know, like other, so, um, what other people can bring, you know, like not only, yeah, it's very, it's very easy, it's very com comfortable to, to stick with the same, with the same group, with the same people, but at the same time, like, what are we missing? What are we missing on, you know, if, if we don't expand? And why is that yes. comfortable? I think it's also reflecting on what about that makes it quote unquote comfortable. And also, you know, the other phrase we throw out to students all the time is get out of your comfort zone. And mm -hmm. I think it would be really interesting. You know, you mentioned data before and, and schools, you know, are certainly that's, that's a hot phrase now too. We're data driven. I would love to see data on how many teachers authentically feel they got out of their comfort zones to what extent and, you know, when and where, uh, how, how are we modeling that? Yes, I think it goes back to that element of safe environments, you know, and what are we doing as educators and and what are schools doing to provide that that space? Are we making room, you know, like are, are we taking time to to make sure that those spaces exist of of, of conversation and and uh you know daring spaces I'm gonna I'm going to call them or are we worrying about other elements? I know, and I know it's very important, you know, like curriculum design, planning and all of that, but wouldn't that work be way richer if we were more connected as individuals? You know, if we knew who we are, if we, if we were, yeah, more daring in the conversations that we're having. Yeah, I, I agree, and, and I hope that happens, and I hope we, we see next year sort of a shift maybe away from spaces being safe for status quo and, you know, in your description, schools being safe to, um, to really face the change that they, that they need to engage with and inspire. So Shay, thank you so much for, for giving up so much of your time today. I really, really appreciated your perspective. Um, and every, every resource that you mentioned, I'm gonna make sure to link to in the show notes. So thank you again. Thank you so much, Trisha. I really appreciate the opportunity and it's, it's been delightful. And I, I appreciate so much your, uh, the work that you do uh, for the LGBTQ plus community. And uh, thank you again. Oh, thank you, that's very kind, thank you. <laughs> Thank you.